Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. I'm your host and comrade Rob, and uh, this is part nine of our series on the Black Panther Party, where we will be reading from the book, Seize the Time, the Story of the Black Panther Party by Bobby Seale. Um, the link to the book is in the description. We will be picking it up at page 146, Eldridge is free. Hi, James. Nice to see you. Um, if you haven't noticed, we are... I'm not ready for that yet. We are all over social media. Um, Facebook. We have two groups. Uh, the Education and Discussion Group and the Mutual Aid Organizing Group. And of course, our website, our newly um, updated <laughs> website uh, for wearemoney.org. We'll be continuing to put things um, on there as we release them. And uh, yeah, join us tomorrow for our piece on the German revolutions and counter revolutions of 1848 and 49. Uh, not to be confused with the Karl Marx, Frederick Engels book of the same name. We do discuss the book briefly, but we kind of talk about the situation um, and what it led to. Um, then, of course, Monday we have our current event stream. Next Tuesday we'll be starting a Revolutionary Left Book Club series on the Communist Manifesto. Um, and then next Thursday, we'll have part 10 of this series. If you're just joining us, uh, once again, we will be picking it up uh, on page 146. The link to the book is in the description, no matter which platform you're watching us on. Um, but before I start reading, I'm going to um, play a bit of a Fred Hampton speech. Yes. 
black people and white poor people and red poor people and Puerto Rican poor people and Latin American Puerto Rican people of uh, uh, poor people of all descent, they had them caught up in movements based on racism when the Black Panther Party stood up and said that we don't care what anybody says. We don't think you fight fire with fire, bitch. We think you fight fire with water, bitch. We're going to fight racism, not from racism, but we're going to fight with solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight it with socialism. We still have said we're not going to fight reactionary pigs and reactionary state attorneys like this and reactionary state attorneys like Hanrahan with any other reactions on our part. We're going to fight their reactions with all of us people to get together and have an international proletarian revolution. Right on. Right on. Right on. And that's saying all power to the people. That's saying that no matter what color you are, there's only two classes. And that's saying there's a class over here and there's a class over there. And the reason that this class over here has never did anything to get this class off its back because this is lower, this is upper, this is the oppressed, this is the oppressor, this is the exploited, this is the exploiter. And these people in this class have divided themselves. They say, I'm black and I hate white people. I'm white and I hate black people. I'm Latin American and I hate hillbillies. I'm hillbillies and I hate Indians. So we fight amongst each other. And you, you've heard the testimony of pigs here. You got pigs of all colors. You know that. You got pigs that are white, you got pigs that are black, you even got pigs that are black and white. Give me just a second here to get my book open here. Uh, all right. Eldridge finally got out of prison after the April shootout on June 6, 1968. The day Eldridge Eldridge got out of Vacaville was a beautiful day. It was a great feeling to see Eldridge free once again. Stokely Carmichael, while he was out to California for Huey's birthday rally, said some stupid things to me and Eldridge like, you guys might as well forget it because Huey will never get out of jail. They're gonna send Huey to the gas chamber and that's it. Man, are you crazy? I said, I got mad at the cat. Man, you're out of your damn mind. If I'm gonna keep working for Huey and Eldridge is, and all of us are, uh, Eldridge was pissed off at Stokely too and wouldn't say a word to him. Eldridge just looked at him like he was a goddamn fool. Before Eldridge got out of jail in June, Stokely came out to California again. This was in May 1968. He brought a friend of his, George Sams, with him then. Later on, Stokely cut George Sams loose because he suspected him of being an agent of some kind. Uh, Stokely told me again that I might as well forget about Huey that they were going to put Huey in the gas chamber. He told me this crap a second time. He also said they were gonna keep Eldridge in jail for the rest of his life. I got mad again. I didn't hit him or anything, but I was pissed off at him. And man, when Eldridge's feet hit the ground, could you talk about a dude being happy? I was really glad. <clears throat> Before Eldridge was released, we went out to work and started calling people up, telling them that Eldridge was coming out, that we needed some bail money and some securities to get him out right away. The bail was hanging at $50,000, but we got him out. I wonder what the hell that stupid, stupid Stokely Carmichael is talking about now, I said to myself. A lot of people were talking about how we couldn't get along and how we really needed unity. Yeah, we need unity, I'm not denying that. 
The Stokely Carmichael said some weird things to us. If you can't stand up for the leaders, and if one leader can't support another leader, then you'll never have an organization, because the leaders will always be jiving. That's very important. That's why the Black Panther Party, first and foremost, wants to free our leader, Huey P. Newton. Minister of Defense is the man we want to free along with all the other political prisoners. This is what Stokely wasn't able to see. My analysis of it is that Stokely is an opportunist chief of staff David Hilliard, Kathleen, and a couple other Panthers went up to get Eldridge. Uh, I stayed down at Charles Gary's office in San Francisco, waiting for them to bring Eld uh, Eldridge in. They drove in, and we had a big press conference. The pigs had shaved Eldridge's face, and he had to cut off all his hair, but the brother was in righteous good spirits, like most revolutionaries who were involved in the struggle. Even before he knew that he would be released, Eldridge was in good spirits. I had gone up to Vacaville to visit him along with Stokely and some other brothers a few weeks before he got out, and Eldridge was feeling real good. This was shortly before uh, Judge Raymond Sherwin of Solano County released him on the grounds that he was being uh, held solely for political reasons that he was, in fact, a political prisoner. That day, after we had visited Eldridge in jail, I noticed Stokely running around talking a whole lot of crazy stuff about how he was going to organize the party and discipline the party and things like that. About half of the stuff he was talking about was cultural nationalism. It didn't relate. We needed brothers to help organize and educate more members, but Stokely still relied on that cultural nationalism and cultural nationalism will not educate people. It makes racists out of them. Cultural nationalism is trying to popularize the sheikis, the natural, the wearing of sandals, and the African dress. There's nothing wrong with having a natural. I have a natural and I like it. But power for the people doesn't grow out of the sleeve of a dashiki. That is something the cultural nationalists just don't understand. Stokely's game was that every Negro, Negro was a potential black man. I'm not quite sure what he means by that. But what we were trying to show him was that every black man must be a revolutionary if he intends to change this decadent society. A lot of Africans know that, but Stokely didn't seem to be aware of it at all. Well, they brought Eldridge down to San Francisco the day he was released. Kathleen, David, and the other Panthers brought him, uh, brought him down to Gary's office where I was waiting. We had a big press conference there and then went over to Eldridge and Kathleen's house on Pine Street. After a while, Eldridge got Kathleen and told me, look, Chairman, I've got to go. Right on, brother. I said, you can, I, sh I, eh, I sure can't understand it. It's just like when I got out of jail a few, uh, few months ago. He said, I'm going to hide out for a day or two. I said, right on, I'll see you, man. So Eldridge and Kathleen cut out. They went to stay with some friends and that was beautiful. The next section is called Our Minister of Information. Um, Shadid, if you want to like say hi or something, I saw you uh, popped in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello. How are you? Good afternoon. Good evening. <laughs> Not doing too bad, man. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, was sitting in the background uh, listening. That story is always intriguing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep, Trisha is uh, gonna be a few minutes. Oh. Yeah, she she said that uh, she forgot it was Thursday and she was doing her grocery shopping. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
But I mean, they were leaving when I started the stream, so it shouldn't be long. That's good. Now, what's this uh, next one called? Uh, the next section is called uh, Our Minister of Information, which I believe is Eldridge Cleaver, if memory serves me correctly. Okay. Um, give me just a second here. I'm going to... Yeah, take your time. I'm going to share our uh, video around because I haven't done that yet. I'm slacking today. Yeah, I'm just over here trying to get some Kool-Aid together. Shouldn't even be drinking this shit. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm kind of surprised that you are. Yeah. Yeah. That shit ain't food. <laughs> Liquid tastes good. You're not wrong. Uh, sugar. Where is sugar? I say, yeah, that's probably the healthiest thing going on. It's just I'm not using uh, high fructose corn syrup. Instead, I do have sugar. This is still processed, though. Right. So how you been anyway? Oh, man, uh, I've been going through some serious ups and downs, but man, every day above ground is a blessing, no matter what problems I have. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, so uh, if I'm not mistaken, man, me and Trish are going to be headed out your way soon. Well, I, th I, I don't know about soon. I, I thought she was trying to wait until it wasn't summer out here no more. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, uh... And that depends on uh, how this year acts. You know, season's been getting, looking a little funny to me. Uh, fall seemed like it didn't, seemed like we didn't really have a fall. Uh, seemed to kind of like transition from motherfucking summer to winter. And we didn't really have that fall season. Wow. It seems like uh, here in the Valley, we started off pretty hot. We had like six days in a row that were over 115 and the lows were above 90, which are both record setters. And because um, I mean like, okay, those temps are not uncommon, but like to have them for a whole week is pretty uncommon. Okay. Um, but that being said, uh, we actually got monsoons this year. This is my third year out here, and this is the first year we've actually had monsoons. Had what? Monsoons, you know, like a rainy season. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Every time it rains, it's like a fucking quarter inch of rain. <laughs> but <laughs> it's something. Yeah. Yep, yep. I'm definitely going to check it out, man, and see if that's the state I want to be. I want to be somewhere where I can ride a bike all year round. Fair enough. Yep. That's going to be my new hobby. I'm going to learn how to ride a bike, do a willy, and flip off the police. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't mean, know do what you, it do is. you really got to learn any of that, though? Uh, yeah, because I, I never rode a bike before. Uh, 
And like I watch YouTube, watch these guys on these sports bikes, and I don't know what it is, man. I've never done a wheelie a day in my life, but it just looks and in my imagination feels so liberating. I don't know what the fuck it is. I haven't figured it out yet. I said, I just got to get on the bike, do it, <laughs> and see what this is really trying to tell me. Right. Yeah, it just uh, it seems like a fun thing to do, though. I got to start learning how to have some fun again. Yeah, man, that's never a bad thing. Yeah. Yep, and uh, try to recapture my youth, if you will. How about yourself, man? How's it been going your way? Uh, pretty good, I suppose. Um, kind of been uh, trying to find a job that I don't hate. You know, that's always a challenge. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I don't know. I mean, in terms of, like, my own life, I guess things have been going all right. That's what's up. I don't have any real complaints, so that's a blessing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure we can come up with some. We just uh, <laughs> rather do something else with the energy. Fair. Trisha finally joined us. Slow okay. ass. Hola. Finally made it. Yeah. Hey, I totally forgot what day it even was. Hasn't been the greatest week. Fair enough. Shit um, happens. So just to catch <laughs> you up, made it. Trisha, we Wasn't are, far um, away. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but just to catch you up, we are on page 148 at the section, Our Minister of Information. Um, I was kind of stalling, though, because I knew you were going to be uh, okay. com coming in soon. So I was just bullshitting with Shadi for a minute. I appreciate that. Thank you, both of you. <laughs> uh, give me just a moment. Uh, I gotta find the link to even pull it up on my phone. Where in our Google Drive is it? <laughs> the, the link is in the description. Never mind. I, I'm searching. That that's that's. Uh, I uh, I'm sending it to our group chat right now. I don't remember okay. what section of the drive That'll it's go in, quicker to be completely than my honest. I just use phone trying to search. Well, I had it searching for it in Google Drive, but it was going so slow, your link is going much faster. But Really, now it's trying to ask me to sign into Google Drive. Well, I mean, I can, I can get back to reading while you... Um, figure it out okay all right when the higher court, oh, I got it. Okay. hell yeah when the higher court overturned judge sherwin's decision to release eldridge from the vacayville state prison facility and eldridge was informed that he had to go back to prison i guess he must have made up his mind right then that he just wasn't going back he stated in speeches that he wasn't going back he knew that they were planning to kill them uh, to kill him there I also think that he felt that we didn't want him to go to prison, and I didn't. I was always opposed to it. Eldridge would never say anything about what he was doing. All of us were hoping we could work something out legally to keep Eldridge from going to prison. We were really hoping for the state Supreme Court decision to come down in favor of Eldridge. But in those days, before he left, uh, Eldridge was in another 
big dispute with the state and with Ronald Reagan concerning the lectures he had been hired to give on racism in America at the University of California. Between early September and November 27th, 1968, Eldridge spoke on college campuses up and down the state of California to 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people in various places. There are 18 state colleges and nine university campuses in California alone. And uh, he was speaking not only in California, but also on other campuses all over the country. He had students cussing out Ronald Reagan by the thousands. The students were opposed to Reagan because of the rotten, underhanded politics of the rich men who were directing it. Eldridge was telling it to the students and they were beginning to understand the truth about politics. Eldridge said, I've cussed my way all around this country and back again. These pigs are really scared of what I'm saying. They're scared because the people are listening. They've got, uh, they've got to shut me up, and they know the only way they can do that is to put me in prison again and kill me there. They think I'm going to go back to that goddamn prison, but I'm not going. Eldridge, I said, if you decide you're going to split, don't tell me. Just split. You've done what was needed. You've got us all cussing out these dogs. They've been needing cussing out for a long time. But it's been an issue, you know, brother Huey P. Newton has said that we shouldn't cuss. I know, man, Eldridge said. I guess I should try to obey what the Minister of Defense says, but they got Huey isolated. He's been down almost a year. Somebody's got to cuss these pigs out for doing that to Huey. And I said, yeah, man, you're right. I feel like cussing them out, too. Are you, um... Caught back up? Completely. Why you take over from it? Yeah, go ahead. He always said that the older people in the community wouldn't understand the cursing. He felt that kind of language would cause the older people, especially the mothers, to misunderstand the real program of the Black Panther Party. So one day I asked my own mother about that. What do you think about Eldridge? She said, ooh, I think Eldridge is beautiful. He's one of the best persons around. She told me she voted for Eldridge for president. After voting for all those Democrats and Republicans for all these years, she voted for Eldridge Cleaver. I said, Mama, I love you. You're really seeing the revolution in your late days. Mama's about 60. Well, I like everything that Eldridge is saying, she said, and he's right. He's telling him the truth, but I wish he wouldn't cuss so much. I said, I hope that don't turn you off. Oh, no, it sure doesn't, she said. I just always wanted y'all to do right, and I know you're doing right. I understand you're getting mad sometimes at the way these... She hesitated for a moment and then went on and said it. These racist pigs, the way they treat us and all our people. Mama was always a Christian woman. Uh, she never talked hate or cursed the oppressors, but she said, I hate the way they do. I just hate the way they murdered Bobby Hutton. I just hate them for being old, low-down, nasty dogs. They've been treating us like this for so many years, just mauling over our people, killing and stomping on our people. Eldridge Cleaver is a very beautiful person, and he's got a very beautiful and wonderful wife. I respect him. I understand why he cusses those low-down politicians out. Still, I do wish he'd stop cussing just a little bit. I said, but are you with us, Mama, in spite of it? She said, oh, yes, Bobby, I'm with y'all. I'll always be with you, because I know you're doing right. Way back yonder, in the days when my Mama was just mauled over and our people would sound like animals, I remember my mother telling me that she wouldn't have to be over here in this country treated like we was, and that somehow or other we should be back over in Africa. Mama, I said, you know we ain't ever going back to Africa. We can't. Sure, I know that, she said. I'm just telling you what my mother felt. 
But also, I know that you and Huey used to talk about Africa and going back and visiting over there and so on a long time ago. I guess all our people sort of dream like that, even the young generation. But I know y'all are just trying to do what you can, and I just hope nobody hurts y'all. But if y'all can do something for the people, she sighed. I'm old now. She said, I wish I was young. I'd get right out there with you and Huey and Kathleen and Eldridge and all of you. But I'm old and I just can't be in the Panthers. Can't do your young ways. But I sure voted for Eldridge Cleaver. Of course, being my mother, she was bound to take our part and be on our side. But I hope she was telling it the way that a lot of older mothers felt. I hope they understand that when we cuss those politicians out, we're not cussing out our people. It's only against the power structure. It never shows disrespect to the people. We're on honestly calling them what they are for messing over us. I hope that they understand what we feel against those who maintain this exploitation, this rotten capitalism and racism, the brutality, and all political, economic, and I hope these older people know that we have to stand up for ourselves. Some of them have Some said... Some of them have said, well, you wouldn't be getting attacked. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I was just stopping for a second to hit my cigarette there. <laughs> oh, oh, you're good. Okay. Some of them have said, uh, well, you wouldn't be getting attacked if you didn't say pigs and all. But we point out to them that our people have always been attacked, and now we have to let other people know what these racist pigs are. We have to redefine them for exactly what they are and stop letting them fool us. And mostly, I think, the older people do need to understand and are for us. Well, Huey wanted the people to understand the real 10-point platform and program. So Eldridge, in his position as Minister of Information, was laying it on thick, but with a creativity and a sense of humor that was only Eldridge's. I remember one evening, Eldridge was due to speak on Channel 44, a television station in San Francisco, on some talk show. I had arrived at the station first, and they led me back to one of those rooms with mirrors on the wall, stools and chairs to sit in, and wait for the program to come on. In came one of the guys who directed or produced that show. He said, look, tell Eldridge, please, please do not do any cussing on the program. It's live. Well, I don't know. I told him, you know how Eldridge is. He just gets so fed up with these politicians. When Eldridge arrived, I said Huey said he'd be watching this, so I don't think he ought to be cussing on the program. Besides, and I couldn't help laughing, this old jive producer came by here and he was really worried about you cussing on the program. After all, it's live. Then Eldridge jumped up and said, what? What? They can't tell me what not to say. I'm going to cuss all of them, every avaricious businessman, every pig, every last one of them who has ever committed brutality on black people. That's what I ought to do, Bobby. He went on saying, I got to do it. I got to do it. But actually, he was kidding, of course, putting them all up tight. He didn't say one cuss word on the program. <laughs> but one time, Eldridge and David had just come back from a series of speaking engagements across the country. And David told me, man, that Eldridge, you just wouldn't believe that cat. He was at a Catholic girls' college, a place where they train girls to be nuns. And Bobby, he had 5,000 girls singing, fuck Ronald Reagan. I love that. I fucking love that. <laughs> I just don't believe that, David, I said. He must have been blowing some heavy politics to get them to see it. Uh, David said he was exposing the politicians for what they are, man. He was exposing them 90 miles an hour. He was talking about the pigs something terrible. Next thing I know, right in the middle of the speech, Eldridge had 5,000 chicks out there singing, Fuck Ronald Reagan. Fuck Ronald Reagan. 
One, two, three, four. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Fuck Ronald Reagan. One, two, three, four. Fuck Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's fucking great. Uh, I got a tape recording of it. David, I said, here. I'll be the David. Doing everything. You're starting to cut out, so I'll just take over right here if that's cool with you. Am I? Yeah. You, you, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, Eldridge was doing everything he could to okay, expose the power structure. Okay, go for it. I'll set my shit down. You could see signs all over that he wasn't going back. You could see by the way he was moving and by the way he was talking. He was exposing Ronald Reagan. He'd go to other cities and expose other demagogic politicians, and he was doing so in a hurry. It was good that he did it. Eldridge knew that he had to do everything he had time to do to expose this fascist power structure for what it really was. Before Eldridge left, I think everybody contemplated it, trying to figure out what effect it would have on the public. They sent Eldridge back to prison. Then when it was announced in the papers that Eldridge was gone, it made all of us more energetic, trying to move to get things organized. Shadid, I think you're breathing in your mic. Oh! <laughs> I was trying to figure out what it was, <laughs> and then I looked at it and I was like, it's gotta be that. <laughs> so I was wondering too, like, wait a minute. Just the steady pace of... Oh, <laughs> uh, man. One of the principles that we re really began to face forth was the one that Brother Huey had run down about the oppressor. The oppressor has no rights that the oppressed people are bound to respect. Eldridge's action was a clear example of this. By not appearing, he was refusing to respect the oppressor's right to lock him up unjustly after he had already been bailed out and released from jail. He was being held as a political prisoner by the government of the state of California, led by Mickey Mouse, fascist Ronald Reagan. I think most of us had read Soul on Ice already. I have not. Has anybody, have either of you read Soul on Ice? No. No, me either. Uh, but I made it a thing that brothers should reread Soul on Ice. Reread what Eldridge was running down. The book is very key and very clear when it, or when it looks at the massive brainwashing of America as a whole. We know about the brainwashing of black people, but this is not really separate from the brainwashing of the proletarian masses of America. I think that many times the cultural nationalists miss this point. We want to unbrainwash our people by telling them the true history. One must tell the true history in terms of the class struggle, the small minority class, uh, ruling class dominating and oppressive, the massive proletarian working class. When I say working class, I mean those who are employed and unemployed, living below substance and at substance level. This book, Soul on Ice, really shakes loose the misconceptions that exist. When you read that book, you'll see that in the beginning, it was a brainwashed black man who was in jail. He had only the white ideals, the Western ideals, and the white woman. When he put the Playboy picture on the wall, he was saying that psychologically and personally, he fell in love with that, uh, with that woman. Then this racist cop guard inside the prison rips the picture down. Eldridge tells the guard that he doesn't have any right to rip it down because everybody's got pinups. The guard tells Eldridge, if you had put a pinup picture of a black girl, I wouldn't have said anything. 
And because of that, Eldridge's consciousness changed and he began to come. He began to become what he is. The first essay in the book is called Unbecoming. So I'm assuming that uh, Soul on Ice is a book written by Eldridge Cleaver. From the sounds of it, yes. And I just made a note in the group chat to add that one to the book club list. Because I want to hear Eldridge's words too. Oh yeah. I don't know much. If you want to, uh, I'll write that down real quick if you want to take back over. All right, I'm gonna check the comments items on there in a minute. Uh, uh, nothing I, I don't know what happened there. That just booted me out for a second. I'm back. Oh, I was wondering. Uh, this is very significantly related to the other things that the book sets forth. When one gets to the chapter Primeval Mitosis, we see how all this is interlocked with the political sphere and the psychological makeup of the omnipotent administrator, the psychological makeup of the Nixons and Johnsons and Eliotos and Ronald Reagans, those who aspire to this peak of um, uh, to this peak of mind, and the black man who is relegated to a lower level. I think Eldridge unbrainwashed everybody in society with his book. Okay, that answers that question. It is an Eldridge Cleaver book. Um, Black, white, blue, green, yellow, red, polka dot, regardless of ethnic differences, etc. Eldridge unbrainwashes anybody who really reads with an open mind. In the revolutionary struggle today, I see Eldridge brought history to the, to the threshold, to the front of a liberation movement here in the midst of the most fascist operation on the face of the earth, right here in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the monster. Um, or as Che Guevara had written a few years earlier, The Belly of the Beast. Uh, while Eldridge and I were in Carmel, something occurred that showed how Eldridge, digging on Huey, could make all the brainwashed past history relevant to the present, to the present day situation. Way back before they announced that Eldridge had to go back to prison, Eldridge had talked to me about writing a biography of Huey and the party. Eldridge said, Bobby, you know Huey longer than anybody in the uh, in the party. You and he founded the party together, so you've got to give us all the information, everything about Brother Huey and about the party, how things developed. Eldridge said that Huey P. Newton followed Malcolm X like Jesus Christ and followed John the Baptist. That made a heck of a lot of sense to me. <clears throat> so Eldridge got some tapes and a recorder and a typewriter and took me down to Carmel to a little cabin to work on the book. Now, in front of the cabin, there was a big swimming pool with a lot of lawn around it, with fruit trees and stuff like that. We came out of the cabin about 10 o'clock one morning. There was a green hose coming around the front of the swimming pool. It went down to the front end of the pool and wound right up a tree, or right up under a tree, an apple tree. On the other side of the swimming pool were some lawn chairs. Bob Shear and a young white girl were sitting in those chairs. Now, Eldridge and I had been talking about how brainwashed the, so the society was and how history has messed up the minds of the people. Just as we stepped outside, Shear said to the girl, hey baby, go over to that apple tree and get me one of those apples. So she went over and picked up this apple and Eldridge and I watched. 
She came back and gave the apple to Sheer, just as Sheer got ready to put it in his mouth. Eldridge spoke. Hey man, you better watch it. You just sent over to, uh, just sent her over to the apple tree for apples. Sheer bit into the apple, saying, What are you talking about? Holding it away from him and looking at it. There's nothing wrong with this apple. And Eldridge said, No, it was a goof up. And I said, Eldridge, what are you talking about? And Eldridge said, History has got society messed up. Our Minister of Defense is in prison, and history has always messed up society's mind with these puritanical notions. So Sheer got up and walked around the pool toward us, bringing the girl with him, and he said, I don't know what you mean. And then I looked at the green hose lying there like a big snake, and I said, I get it. He's talking about Sheer in the gar Garden of Eden, and this girl going to the apple tree. You're in the Garden of Eden, I said to Sheer. Uh, Eldridge said, and you didn't defend it. You didn't defend the land of paradise. Sheer's a white cat, and he's supposed to be a liberal, and he still didn't know what Eldridge was talking about. And Eldridge said, What you did is, you let the omnipotent administrator send down a pig angel. His name was Chief Gain, or any other chief of police in the country. You let him come down with a naming sword. With a weapon, you let him drive you out of the Garden of Eden, and you didn't defend it, you and your woman. This developed into a very creative moment, being there with Eldridge, I said, yeah, that's right, you jived around, and the omnipotent administrator was watching. He told you to replenish the earth, and just about the time you got ready to replenish the earth, he turns around and drives you from the garden into the wilderness. He sent down an angel with a naming sword. Symbolically, it isn't really an angel. You see, it's really a pig, and you didn't defend it. Eldridge said, you let the pig drive you out into the wilderness. I said, command the pigeon to fly and then clip his wings. That's the policy of the omnipotent administrator. But if it had been Huey Newton in the middle of the Garden of Eden, said Eldridge, and the pig angel came down after the omnipotent administrator had told Huey to go forth and exercise his constitutional rights and replenish the earth, if it had been Huey P. Newton and this pig that had been, uh, and this pig had been swinging the flaming sword at him, Huey would have jumped back and said, no, I'm defending myself. If you swing that sword at me, I'm shooting back. Symbolically, Robert Shear was the liberal white who wouldn't defend the Garden of Eden, the land of paradise. We see that mankind was driven out of the land of paradise to sweat by his brow from sunup to sundown. Whereas if Huey P. Newton had been in the Garden of Eden, he would have defended himself. He would have defended the land. He wouldn't have been driven out after Ben commanded to go and replenish the earth. It was... It was no reflection on Shear, nothing that Shear had done. We weren't, we weren't speaking of Shear himself. We use Shear in that situation as a symbolic of the liberal who won't do anything and really wants to sit around and jive and talk when the next thing you know, the vicious fascist system, which calls itself God, and the omnipotent administrators at the top will have done in the people and taken away the land of paradise and the right to live in happiness and peace on the face of the earth. You have to defend the needed new system that's coming forth. Talking isn't enough. You have to fight for it. You have to work for it if you intend to have it. If you do anything other than that, you'll just be oppressed. That incident helped me to see the significance of Soul on Ice and how people are brainwashed. Many people have heard me talk about the Superman missions. I try to make this relevant to an everyday situation by talking about the concepts of the comic books. Uh, the Donald Duck comic books, Mickey Mouse, Archie, and Jughead, etc. These put forth puritanical notions and symbols that are directly related to racism. I began to see Superman was a punk 
and that Superman didn't relate to replenishing the Earth like Huey Newton and other real people do. Superman is a superficial fantasy that, that relates to a steel man. Steel men can't relate to any reality because steel doesn't produce real human life, and real human men can't relate to any reality because steel because steel doesn't... What did I do? I think I read the same line over again. Steel men can't relate to any reality because steel doesn't produce real human life and real human flesh. I talked about how Superman never related to Lois Lane and that Tricky Dick Nixon and Lynchin Baines Johnson <clears throat> and those types were the ones that were going to try to play Superman. The almighty gods with their anti-tank weapons and anti-tank missiles and hydrogen bombs and missiles that really destroy life. In essence, Superman is a phony and a fake. <clears throat> he never saves any black people in this country in any comic book stories. And this 30-year-old figure and other figures of Donald Duck should all have beards on. They are older than the hills. They are phony and absurd. The fact is that a man and a woman relate to each other that through sexual relations they produce another real human being. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck never tried to have sexual relations in the comic books with Daisy and Minnie Mouse. Archie and Jughead never tried to relate sexually to Betty and Veronica in the comic books. These things are very important in terms of how people are brainwashed in society. Two and a half billion people on the face of this earth came here through the process of a man and a woman having sexual relations. The omnipotent administrators taboo these things. It's it's this kind of brainwashing that produced the kind of people who believe that sex is nasty and talk about illegitimate children. A child, a human fucking being, cannot be illegitimate. These things come to be understood clearly when you read Eldridge Cleaver's book. Uh, do you want to take back over, Trisha? You're muted. There we go. Welcome I know back. that I did that. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, this next part kind of makes me go, huh? And and wonder a bit there uh, about his homophobic tendency there. Because it says, Eldridge shows how homosexuality becomes rampant and is really part of the psychological makeup of the omnipotent administrators to such an extent that they're cut off from the body. Wow. That it's not actually applicable at all. Um, right, right. Well, I mean, let's not forget that this uh, this was a very hot-button issue in the U.S. already. At the time. At this time, yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, I hope that uh, that doesn't reflect how they actually felt about it, but I guess everybody... Uh, so what? how are they saying that they felt about it, though, like? Saying that being gay is because of, you know, that that's what the power structure would want you to do to go against the family structure, basically. And that's not the case. Nobody makes a choice to be gay. You know? I'm flexible as fuck, and it doesn't have anything to do with the government. And The class system is highly related to a woman and a man trying to relate to each other more fully and more, more totally and oppressive social obstacles, political and economic, affect us totally. It is very necessary for the masses to understand soul on ice, so they can understand and pinpoint the oppressive administrations of the government here, and realize that this system has to be changed to a more progressive system that serves all of the people. 
The party as a whole is involved in this and many millions of people are becoming more aware. The book has sold way over a million copies and is still selling at a fantastic rate. We are very close to Brother Eldridge. We know that he and Kathleen were forcibly separated from us. It's not a thing of him leaving us. We understand that oppression has put Eldridge where he is now. We know that the power structure wants to kill him. We, they don't want him back here. Eldridge was and is one of the key brothers in the Black Panther Party. Of all of the brothers on the Central Committee, Eldridge was the key. Before Eldridge left, he did a magnificent revolutionary job as Minister of Information, educating the masses of America, hipping black people to the need to work together in some unity, and showing the white people that the omnipotent po uh, power structure and administrators are enemies of all of the people. I think that after he left, it made even more people become Black Panther Party members. Thousands of black uh, people really began to check him out much more closely than they had checked him out before. Some of the party members had been very superficially relating to Eldridge, not really understanding him. But Eldridge's objective was to try and get people to be more concrete. He wanted those black brothers and sisters who ran off to one side and didn't really work closely with uh, the people in the community to become part and parcel with the people in the community. And he wanted to move the liberal whites too to be uh, revolutionaries. The, uh, the next section is called Bunchy Carter and Bobby Hutton. Bobby Hutton was the first member of our party murdered by the police and Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were among the latest. Between those murders, there was a long, black, or a long line of black brothers gunned down by racist cops and black racist cultural nationalists working with the power structure against the revolutionary program of the Black Panther Party. Bobby Hutton loved Bunchy Carter. Bobby Hutton used to develop alter ego relationships with different party leaders, Huey, Eldridge, myself, and Bunchy. His latest, at the time he was killed, was imitating Alprentice Bunchy Carter. He tried to become more politically educated like Bunchy was, and he really dug Brother Bunchy because Bunchy had been in uh, Bunchy had been in prison. It wasn't a boasting kind of absurd, I did this much time and I did that much time thing that Bobby related to. Bobby related to Bunchy because Bunchy was the brother who had come from prison and was back in the community working to serve the people. Bunchy also had an air about him that was stylish in the manner and environment of the black community that little Bobby readily communicated with. This manner is in the poetry that Bunchy, that Bunchy would write and recite, and also in the sharp way that Bunchy dressed, the clothes of the people. We all have some sharp clothes, but Bunchy was always sharp, clean with a sharp suit, hip socks, and shine knobs. Little Bobby would see Bunchy with a big natural that was kept very neat, a big mustache, a sharp suit, and some clean clothes on, and he really dug the way Bunchy looked. At the same time, Bunchy wasn't selfish. Deep down inside, he really loved his people, and he loved them so much uh, that when he saw them doing something wrong, he would cuss the brothers out to try to get them to understand the need to survive, to unify, to defend ourselves, and to be revolutionaries and work in the community to serve the people. This is the thing that surprised Bobby. Little Bobby was only 16 years old and he wanted to be sharp. Living in poverty and seeing Brother Bunchy somehow stay sharp and at the same time be a service to his community kind of showed Bobby that he didn't have to get out of the party. 
He didn't have to say, well, I'm going to give up the party just to get me some sharp blows, as some brothers would, out of selfishness. Bunchy had it arranged so that on his parole, he was receiving a fair sum of money working at a poverty program as some kind of assistant director. That's how he kept himself sharp. Well, one would first see Bunchy. One might think that Bunchy was a pimp or some kind of hustler off the block, but he wasn't. Uh, not that he didn't know the pimps and hustlers, Bunchy was very well respected and well known throughout Watts in the black community in Los Angeles by many, many people. When he was murdered, the party had to go down and try to talk some of the brothers, try to talk to some of the brothers because there were some five or six hundred brothers throughout Watts that put shotguns in their cars and were looking for anything that looked like a member of Ron Karenga's U.S. organization that had murdered him. We tried to tell the brothers that we didn't want to drive war in the black community among black people, but at the same time, we wanted to see to it that those cats who did the killing were prosecuted. We felt that if the power structure didn't prosecute him, or if they used some kind of trick to let them go after prosecution, in the long run, this would prove to the people that the U.S. organization, black racism, and cultural nationalism were ultimately the tools of the power structure, and that they stagnate the people's revolutionary structure for needed change in the community. One of the cleanest things about Bunchy was his deep seriousness and honesty about need for revolutionary change. When Eldridge, I, or someone from Central Headquarters would give him an order to stop doing something, he would stop. If he thought he was right, he would come down and he would come and sit down and argue with us, not in an antagonistic manner, but a manner that showed that he wanted us to show him where he was wrong because he still felt that it should be done. But he would stop if ordered to. Bunchy also respected organization, which is another thing that little Bobby picked up from him. Apprentice Bunchy Carter was killed because a, a group of blacks, black racists and cultural nationalists from uh, Ron Karenga's organization, became the enemies of the people and in essence sided with the capitalist power structure. These pig black racists really work with the power structure against their own people and do it out of psychological need to hate white people just because of the color of their skin. Bunchy had been working in LA organizing the Black Panther Party throughout the city. In January of 1968, Bunchy had some arguments and small conflicts with the US organization. Bunchy was concerned about the fact that the organization had been running around intimidating, threatening, and uh, beating up a number of people in the community, in the uh, Black Student Union, or BSU, and other small factionalized black organizations. Bunchy and the Black Panther, Par black Panther Party were not about to be intimidated by anybody. These other groups asked Bunchy to stop Ron Karanga and take over the Black Congress of organizations that had been formed there, and Ron Karanga was in control of. Bunchy called up and told us that he was going to go and corner Karenga and his boys and tell them that they better stop their intimidation of those people. We told Bunchy to forget Ron Karenga because most organizations like his are bootlicking organizations not representative of the community and that the people will choose the organization that serves them most. I told them on the phone what you should do is get out on the community or get out in the community and forget Ron Karenga and the Black Congress too and go set up these community offices. You should have five, six, or seven offices set up down there in all the different black community areas throughout LA. Uh, work from there, serving the people, and move to implement the party's 10-point platform and program, and politically educate the mas masses of the people. That's what has to be done. Forget Ron Karanga. 
But she followed orders. He flew up on a plane a week later and wanted to argue his point, but Eldridge and I told him to forget Karanga and U.S. Um, Bunchy felt that Karanga was going to cause some grave danger to the black community. Our argument was that if he attacked the black community, the black community would attack him and remove him. Some months after that, John Huggins was made Deputy Minister of Information by the Southern or of the Southern California chapter of the party to replace this Jacanape. I don't know what that means. Earl Anthony, who wasn't relating to the duties of that area of work. John and Bunchy worked very closely to pull the party together in Los Angeles. The incident has led to their murder, or that led to their murder, was part of this work. Uh, the Black Student Union of UCLA had been having problems with U.S. for a long time. A $20,000 a year job opened up, director of some kind of, some kind of community and student program. And the U.S. Uh, wanted the job and wanted their puppet placed in control. The BSU did not want them to control the program, and since the Black Panther Party had grown to be an integral part of the Black community in Los Angeles, the Black Student Union asked Bunchy and John to come up to a meeting about it on the UCLA campus. The BSU asked them what they thought about Karanga's attempts to control their group, and Bunchy and John spoke for about five minutes. All that they said was uh, at that meeting was that the students had a right to control their own destiny and power to the students. Then they left. Two days later, on Friday, another meeting was called. John and Bunchy repeated the same five-minute power to the students rap. That was the day they were killed, murdered right there in the meeting room by those racist, murderous pigs from the U.S. Of course, Ron Karanga had no political power base with his cult cultural nationalism and black racism in Los Angeles. He runs around and has a little jive office stuck up somewhere, but everywhere everybody is aware of his game and his capitalistic set of little jive businesses, mainly service stations. Those businesses are not cooperatives. They're not here to serve the people. From his past record and his meeting behind the scenes with the Rockefellers, we know that he got a couple all right, he got those jive little businesses as a handout to trick the community on the concept of blackness and black is beautiful. Ron Karenga had no intention before and has no intention now of working in opposition to the power structure to change the system for the needs of black America. All the uh, murders of party members, such as Bunchy, Little Bobby, John Huggins, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, Tommy Lewis, and the brothers who were gunned down prior to Bunchy, plus a host of other brothers who were shot up and killed by cops and racist cultural nationalists across the country, have not destroyed the party. The arrests of our members have not destroyed the party. We pay a tribute to these dead brothers of ours, and every Black Panther Party member and the people in the community honor them. We will fight against the racist pigs and the black racists who work together to destroy the party. Is, uh, is Trisha back yet? Yeah, give me just a moment. I'm checking the radar because it looks like some rain's about to hit. I might have to pack shit up and migrate out to the garage. Uh. Yeah. Uh.
Yeah, like you can feel it in the air just shifted, so I was uh, checking that real quick. Sorry, my apologies. Give me just a few minutes to get everything moved in there, and uh, I will pick up and start reading there once I get set up in the garage. All right. Well, uh, the next chapter is called Charles R. Gary, The Lenin of the Courtroom. Those are some high, uh, some high words. If the power structure tried to stop Charles Gary from going into the courtroom and defending people's basic human and legal rights and stop defendants from seeing their lawyers and having their constitutional rights, Charles Gary couldn't be stopped at all. He's the type of man who would go down to the pawn shop and buy himself a gun to defend his home and himself because he's got enough insight to know that this system is corrupt. I even heard him say that he doesn't ever want to be a judge. Uh, uh, Trisha, just so you know, I muted you because all I could hear was you moving around. Um, anyway. My bad. You're good. Uh, I even heard him say that he doesn't ever want to be a judge, not with the way the system is going. He never would want to be a commissioner or a politician. The way he explains it, the institutions are being used by big money and rich businessmen who control them. And he doesn't want to be a puppet for any of them. He said that he has made up his mind a long time ago about whether he was going to do his fighting in the streets or go ahead and work for the people and try to do it in the courtroom. He always respects the fact that he made that decision and we're glad he did because the people need somebody like Charles R. Charles R. Gary was able to come forth and stand up for the people when he sees things going wrong and to defend the underdog. That is something that we know that Charles Gary has dedicated his life to. I have never seen a person like that, even in the Black Panther Party. Charles doesn't interfere in our politics. Sometimes he can almost see us making a mistake on some specific thing or situation, but if we disagree with him, he doesn't interfere in our politics. He doesn't try to run them or anything like that. Sometimes we found that our political relationships with some organization or group were slightly off-key and didn't work out. Often it would be something that Charles had run down and told us we were making a mistake about. It's good to have a person around like that who, who will tell you uh, you are making a mistake and if you don't agree with him, he's willing to let you learn and still be a beautiful friend and comrade who is dedicated to defending you and who knows you're right. Just to go to Charles Gary's house. His wife is a very loving and very beautiful person. You're very welcome there. You're a human being. A lot of times we would go over to their house and if we wanted a beer, we got a beer. If we wanted something to eat, it seemed like it was a real pleasure for Mrs. Gary to be able to fix us some food. A lot of times we would be run down. We wouldn't have eaten, eaten rather, and Charles knew it. And I suppose he told his wife quite often that we were running ourselves to death. Sometimes when we, when we got over to their house, we'd be so run down and hungry that she could see it and she'd start preparing food, putting things on the table and telling us to help ourselves. This is the relationship we developed with Charles and Mrs. Gary. It is a very human relationship and one we cherish very, very much. Charles is a cat who doesn't back up from things. Back in the days when he was defending 
Back in the days when he was defending the unions who were striking or moving forth for better wages and better conditions, a lot of police pressure and big time political pressure was put on many of the unions and the cats who were moving for a higher standard of living. Charles defended them to the end. We heard stories about Charles getting caught out at night by himself two or three times and cops jumping out of their cars and snatching Gary out of his car and brutally beating him. A man who took the time to be a lawyer to defend the people realizes and understands the pressures that come from the, co the corrupt government when you try to stand on the side of the people. By finding these things out, I began to understand why Charles never wanted to be a part of the corrupt governmental system. Charles comes from poor oppressed people. He's of Armenian descent, from people who were destroyed by being scattered throughout Europe and around the world when Hitler went forth to massacre and slaughter them during his regime. We don't know every detail of Charles's life, but we can see that he is a man who is dedicated to the survival and existence of the right to self-determination of human beings. We need a lot more history on Charles R. Gary so we can understand what motivates a man to be such a defender of people's human rights. One time... Ugh, why do I keep yawning? One time when we were in Judge Lionel Wilson's court in Alameda County, Charles was defending my wife and me on charges that came when cops illegally entered our house. When Charles cross-examined this Berkeley cop who was trying to show he had reasonable cause to come in and search our house and arrest us, Charles caught him up in a whole lot of lies. Charles knows so much law it comes off the top of his head. He showed that the pig didn't have any reasonable cause because he got him to, got him to admit that our house was quiet, that there were no disturbances at our house that night and it was way over an hour before they came back to arrest me. Artie and I sat there all day in court and didn't say a word. We watched Charles handle it and listened to all the proceedings. Artie felt from the way Charles handled it, the way that he would get up at certain points, and from his style of cross-examining, she felt that Charles was better than Perry Mason. Uh, she even felt, or she felt this even before the judge decided that the police had no reasonable cause to be searching our house. The evidence was squashed, and the judge said we should be cut loose and acquitted on the charge. Artie really had a lot of confidence in Gary because Charles sometimes helped us out with family problems. Often I would be very busy jumping on planes, going to New York, flying back to LA the next day, or going away for three or four days around the country speaking at colleges and rallies. A lot of times my wife would get very disgusted, and I tried to get her to work more with the party. She has a tendency to want to look at TV and take care of the house. I was trying to show her she has to be a revolutionary politician too, even though we have a little boy. She would become very disturbed and didn't like it. She would go and talk to Charles and Charles would try to get her to understand why I had to be away so much. At the same time, Charles would sit down and tell me that I was going to have to make some time, uh, take some time off and be at home as much as I could because my wife was frequently upset because I was so busy with the party. Char Charles is not the kind of lawyer who isn't one and one with his clients. During Huey's trial, he would get out and investigate the situation himself. He would talk to people to do, to do a lot of personal investigation. When Bobby Hutton was murdered during the April 6th shootout in which the cops tried to ambush the Panther brothers, Charles was down there on the spot. When her house was raiding it, he was there investigating the house, how they surrounded it, the size of the apartment, etc. He's always getting into things and digging down in the guts of the case. That's the kind of K he is. If you couldn't get there, 
uh, he'd have somebody else do it. Sometimes he'd even get together with Chief of Staff David Hilliard and have David do some investigation work in and around different charges leveled against us. Or he'd get some of the brothers to look for evidence. Are you, uh, are you back in? Almost, not quite. All right. Uh, when he there's leaves, a lot of stuff to unpack it or unhook and pack back up. So between like the cooling pad and all that shit. So Sorry. give me a moment. Right. When he leaves the courtroom, Charles is always ready to sit down and talk to us at his office if he has time. He doesn't have much time these days, but when he has time, he is always ready to be one and one with us. Charles is the chief counsel of the Black Panther Party. When I say he is one-on-one -on -one with us, it's based on some kind of practice. It's not just words or trying to sell somebody something. When there's a brother in jail, he makes it a point to get up to see him and talk to him and interview him. He doesn't let brothers and sisters sit in jail without having some contact with them. He's gotten the other lawyers on Panther cases to see that they have to be one-on-one uh, -on -one with their clients in the Black Panther Party. He lets the other lawyers who function and work with the party know that this is the way you have to function with a politi political organization like ours. He lets the other lawyer know that they have to be one and one with us and work right along with their clients, visit their clients, see their clients, interview their clients, and know their clients. When we hired Charles to defend Huey, Charles went into, uh, went into Black History. He took the time to study and read up on Black History and actually know it. He met Huey P. Newton and he expressed to me a number of times how beautiful Huey was and how he was glad to know that Huey had the political perspective and the insight and the human understanding that he had. Uh, he said meeting Huey inspired him to really want to know Black America better. From time to time, I would drop over to his office, books and other material on W.E.B. Du Bois, Nat Turner and the history of Black America, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X and other things. Charles really studied and learned it. He didn't only study books. He studied and learned in relating to us. The man is so dedicated to defending us, he sees that we are being persecuted. He knows that it's repression. He knows that the underdog is being denied his human rights to live and survive. When he walks into the courtroom, he doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have a firearm or anything like that, but he's got something that is just as effective. <clears throat> Huey used to say that a newspaper could be sharpened like a double-edged sword. I think that the legal defense that is being placed forth by Charles R. Gary for us is just as effective as a gun to defend ourselves from unjust attack. You see that man work in a courtroom and all of a sudden the procedure of things is clear in your mind. When you see a DA move and use racist tactics, or when you see a judge literally turn his head and deny your right and let racist operations and maneuvers go on in the courtroom, Charles Gary is setting forth law that seems clear to you. So clear that you could recite it yourself. You're not saying anything, but you feel you want to call that judge or DA who's doing you wrong a racist. And all of a sudden, Charles R. Gary has got the human gall to let the judge know that he's racist right to his face. It makes you feel good to know that a man is standing up and defending you. In the context of law and legality, he can place forth a man's feelings and a man's desires, a man's innocence and a man's right to survive and live as a human being. He places forth the people's rights. This is what's beautiful about Charles.
Um, in studying Lenin's works, his writing and materials, one learns a lot about Lenin's ability to use language to set forth the correct philo uh, philosophy of life as a human being on the face of this earth, and also about the tactics for achieving a correspondent world through revolutionary socialism. We turn it right back around and we look at Charles Gary and say that this man is the Lenin of the courtroom. Which, uh, I mean, as I already said, that's, that's a bold statement to make. At first, Charles was Huey's lawyer, and then he became my lawyer. As more attacks and more arrests came down, we got Charles on all the cases. Pretty soon he was the uh, lawyer for the entire Panther Party. We've seen Gary's whole firm. Bernard Dreyfus, Al Brodsky, Frank McTurnan, Faye Slender, Jim Herndon, and the other lawyers who are associated with them working on Panther cases. And they're all very good lawyers. I went over there one day and they were all working on my case. Huey's case, the April 6th shootout, and all these brothers' cases, and Eldridge, Eldridge's case. We were filing suit against the city of Oakland and they had a lot of court appearances to make. The whole office was involved in our cases. They began to have their, handle other legal matters for us, helping us to get our income tax out and other things like that. That office was humming. We used to go over there off and on. Uh, the cats were working 10 hours a day and we hadn't had a chance to raise their fees um, for three or four months at, at, at times, but they stuck with us. That's the thing we respect about Charles Gary, about that firm. Those people, the secretaries and everybody, took time to know us. Faye Stender did a lot of beautiful, heavy legal work for us on Huey P. Newton's appeal brief to the higher courts. The next thing we knew, Charles couldn't handle all the cases. Now McTurnan handles cases. Other lawyers across the country, uh, the first name should sound uh, fairly familiar here, William Kunstler, um, Francis Andrew, Gerald Lefcourt, Sanford Katz, Bill Grain, Arthur Kanoy, and a number of others are also handling our cases. I hope those lawyers see Charles setting an example to defense lawyers, using the legal and proper tactics of the courtroom to bring out the true philosophy and ideology of the party and of any other progressive, revolutionary, and liberal people fighting for human rights and survival in a country that's growing more fascist every day. Charles is always ready to defend us. We've got communication with him on a human level. He's even lost a couple cases when we actually saw overt racist, racist tactics employed in the courtroom, but we didn't jump up, jump up and say, oh, he loses cases. The human relationship, relationships you have with a person are the best thing, and we know that Brother Charles Gary will sit up and fight. He is where it's at. When the black lawyers tried to attack Charles just because he was white, we defended him. Charles kept Huey out of the gas chamber. We rightfully give him the credit. Charles turns around and gives it to us for organizing community and political support, but we give it right back to him. The only time that Charles was with me in Chicago was when I was arraigned and charged in federal court in April of 1969 in the Chicago conspiracy case. That's why I said that William Kunstler's name should sound familiar. Uh, we did a movie watch along fuck a long time ago um, about the trial of the Chicago 7. Um, when we got there, the hallways and corridors of the federal building were packed with about a thousand people, predominantly black. 
We finally made our way through the crowd to the courtroom, but there was a lot of federal pigs at the door who said everybody had to be searched. I don't have to be searched, Charles, Charles Gary said. I'm one of the lawyers here. It doesn't make any difference, the pig said. You get searched, Judge Hoffman said. Everybody gets searched. You're not searching me, Charles said. You're not going to destroy my integrity in court. I don't have any guns on me. You're the one who has guns on you. You're not searching me. Well, you can't come in the courtroom. We're coming in. If I don't come in there, there's not going to be an arraignment. You're not searching me. I was on the other side of the marshal inside the courtroom. A couple of them were searching me and I said, right on, Charles. Charles got all the uh, other lawyers together outside and he said, we're not coming in. So that's called a strike. I didn't know lawyers could strike. Um, I was sitting there and uh, Jerry Rubin came in and they pat searched him. One of the other defendants came in behind Jerry. I think it was uh, John Reness. While they were pat searching him, Jerry Rubin started pat searching him too. The marshal was patting down one leg and Jerry Rubin started pat searching the other one. Oh, he's all right. Let him go, Jerry said. What are you guys doing? I asked. Here, let me search you. He said and walked, walked toward the marshal, pat searched him a little bit and then walked away. I cracked up. It looks like we're not going to have an arraignment today, I told Jerry, because if I know Charles, he isn't going to let them be running through his briefcase and searching it. He already told them he won't let him destroy his integrity as a lawyer and an officer of the court. All eight defendants were sitting there. We looked up and guess who was coming into the courtroom from the rear door where the judge comes through? Charles R. Gary and all the lawyers. Hey Charles, did they search you? I asked him. Heck no, they're not going to search me or anybody. None of these lawyers were searched. So then he walked around and said the judge didn't like it because we weren't going to come in. So he decided to let us come through the back way. <laughs> that was one of those things with him. Lawyers are officers of the court and you're not supposed to treat them like they're not. That's what he's stuck on, those ethics. Because they have the human integrity to argue for justice. Judge Hoffman treated the defense lawyers like criminals throughout the trial, which, again, we saw. Um, we also saw some of uh, Jerry Rubin and um, Abby Hoffman's tactics. And Abby always pointed out that he was not related to Judge Hoffman. Um, so, like, we, we already have a little bit of, like, background context for this. We already know that Jerry and Abby refused to take the thing seriously because the whole damn thing was a joke, right? Um, and, I mean, we also know that Bobby Seale eventually got his own trial, but not before he was bound and gagged in the courtroom, pepper sprayed in the courtroom, simply for speaking his piece. Anyway, um, you have to imagine Charles Gary in a courtroom. He's a tough lawyer, but he's not tough in the sense that you see the DA's trying to act tough. The DA's also try and act smooth and sneak and slide and pull little legal tricks. But Gary's a tough lawyer, and he doesn't let those little dry sneaky tricks under the part of the DA slide by. I think Schultz and Ferran would have folded up in Chicago under Gary. And Judge Hoffman wouldn't have insulted Gary consistently as he did Kunstler and Wineglass. Hoffman later sentenced them to years in jail for their real human integrity. Um, yes. Yes. I, I forget what the exact count of uh, contempt of court charges that Kunstler had in that trial, but it was, I, I think it was like 27.
Uh, just check in the comments, but there's uh, not a lot of commenting going on today. Trisha, are you back yet? Almost. I'm setting everything up out here. I need just a second to get my phone plugged in before it croaks. And then I can uh, find where you left off there. All right, now I've been I'm listening, but and now I'm at the top of page 163. Okay, give me just a minute, Rob. Gary's got so much law on top of his head that the in the courtroom he comes out fighting. There's no bell rung, but there's a gavel struck. Somebody hollers, order in the court, or all rise, this court is now in session, pursuant to adjournment. While Charles is there, he's agile all day long. He's always moving. From the way he acts, you'd never know that Charles is 60 years old. When he's sitting there and he jumps up to expose a sneaky trick that a DA might pull, they have to watch out because Charles is coming off with so much law and it's going to be so explicit, short, to the point, and clear. He's telling the judge that such low-life courtroom tactics shouldn't even be allowed, or words to this effect. This is where Charles is, and if you know Charles, you know he believes in what he's defending. He knows that he's defending something that's right, and he's defending someone who's right. He's really there to defend the trumped-up cases, at least those that we've been in, where you know that railroad operations are going on. Uh, he's ready to bring the facts out in matters where you just don't expect it. If you sit up in the courtroom and watch Charles work, he'll come out with certain things in defense of his defendants that you just don't expect. He doesn't take shit from anybody. He doesn't take shit from judges, DAs, cops, sheriffs, bailiffs. They don't mess over Charles because Charles knows the law and he knows that he's defending it right. Some lawyers will let judges and DAs get away with a lot of crap, but Charles doesn't. He won't let, let, he won't let them get away with a lot of junk. If there's a, if there's a judge who respects law and real justice, I don't mean railroading and I don't mean justice who only say they respect justice. But if there's a judge who respects justice, Charles respects him. If there's a DA who believes he's right, Charles doesn't run over the man. He's able to say, good evening, good morning, hello, and how are you doing? He's that type of person. He never forgets that there are many people who can be wrong, but they are still human beings, and he will treat them in that manner. But he won't let any bigots, racists, or fascists, whether they be sheriffs, cops, judges, or DAs, run over him, and we won't let them run over his clients. There have been cases where Charles has caught judges or DAs trying to pull slick tricks and has exposed them. He has brought the stuff out in courtrooms in some of the Panther cases. I've also seen Charles take a cop's testimony apart on the stand. I've seen him make three cops who think they're telling the same story tell three completely different stories so that it sounds as if they happen in three different places. This is just a way of saying that Charles is something else when it comes to a lying cop on the witness stand. Especially when he catches a cop masquerading as a victim of an unprovoked attack or when he catches a cop who has violated a defendant's rights. When Charles finds them masquerading like that, he really eats them up. He takes cops' testimonies apart. That's one of the beautiful things that Charles is good at, catching one of those pigs on the stand lying. Besides being our lawyer, our chief defense counsel, Charles Gary is also an honorary San Francisco police officer. He has a special police department badge. 
Uh, Dr. Washington Garner, a black doctor who knew Charles very well, was appointed to the police commission in San Francisco several years ago. Dr. Garner made Charles an honorary police officer and gave him a gold badge. It hit all the papers in the Bay Area. That, that upset cops all over California, the bigots and the racists, because at that, at that time, Charles was right in the middle of Huey P. Newton's trial. We heard wild, crazy, upsetting racist from Marxist stories. We, re we read them in the newspapers as far south as Los Angeles. They were really mad. But Charles cut the honorary policeman's badge, he began to receive a lot of threatening letters after that, and uh, we suspect most of those letters came from racist bigots who were on the police force. Charles started to give the honorary policeman's badge back, but when the bigots, racists, and fools started to scream, Charles decided to keep it. When he was defending Warren Wells, who was involved in the April 6th shootout, Charles took out his gold honorary badge during a recess and started waving it all around. Warren figured it wasn't a real badge and uh, was frantically trying to whisper to Gary Charles, Charles, you better put that away because they're going to arrest you. They'll bust you, man. You can't impersonate a pig, especially nowadays. You can imagine Warren Wells' mind going through all kinds of changes with Charles Gary being the chief counsel for all of the Panthers and the head Panther lawyer. You can imagine Warren's mind going 21 ways thinking about uh, thinking that if one of those deputies saw Charles with the badge, his own lawyer was going to get thrown in jail. Warren got real excited when Charles was playing around with a few of the people in the court corridor, corridor during the recess, uh, holding up his badge and saying, see, I'm a pig too. I'm a pig too. Charles didn't want to upset Warren, and Warren couldn't call Charles the pig at all. No one could ever do that, because Charles R. Gary is a great revolutionary lawyer, a brother to our way of thinking, Lennon of the courtroom. Um, so there's a couple notes, which number one is about knobs, and I was wondering what they were talking about. Knobs are up-to-date yeah. stylish shoes with well-shined toes. Yeah. Pimp socks are men's socks that you can almost see through. They are usually nylon. An article from the Wall Street Journal Wait, on the... Yeah, a thousand bucks. <laughs> yeah, that's about the only good thing that happened to me. I just finally caught up with where you were at there. <laughs> yeah, an article from the Wall Street Journal on the that's meeting between cool. Karenga and the Rockefellers can be found in the back in the Black Panther, February 2nd, 1969 edition. Nice. Um, honestly, that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, I'm either getting the house or um, we're having one I'm thinking party. that I'm probably gonna, you know, edit tonight's episode and repost it. Okay. But. Oh, sorry, I couldn't help you with the reading for the last 15 minutes. I, I got everything migrated out here just in time to wrap shit up. <laughs> Fuck. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, next time we'll be starting the chapter Chicago. Kidnap, chain, tried, and gag. Uh, we already have a little bit of backstory to this chapter, um, but this should be a lot more in-depth. Right, and much more in depth than, than the Chicago saw, Seven yeah. movie was able to go. Yeah, yeah, that movie was fucking epic, dude. Oh yeah, I was I was kind of sad you weren't here for the last chunk. We were talking about, uh, well, they compared Charles Gary to William Kunstler, right? And I mean, there was some other yeah. names in there that were that were. Um, 
familiar. Um, such as Jerry Rubin. I was listening the whole time. I was listening the whole time so I, I could still find out what all was, you know, going on in that part of the book. Um, I just had my mic muted so you didn't have to hear the clatter of me moving stuff around. But yeah, I, I can see the parallel there between the two of them because both of them were very adamantly um, standing up for their rights, their clients' rights, and going, fuck this, we're not being railroaded in the court. We're officers of the court. Fuck your yeah, shit. but I mean, I think that they do kind of put him on a pedal, uh, kind of put Charles Gary on a pedestal. I understand that he got Huey P. Newton out of prison, and that is a hell of an accomplishment yeah. in, in that political climate. Yeah, the right. are horrible this year. I mean, right. first they called him the Lenin of the courtroom, which, okay, maybe he was. I don't know. But, like, mm-hmm. they went on to say that they don't think that this Charles Gary would have been walked <laughs> over in the courtroom by Judge Hoffman. Um you know, like William Kunstler was, and I don't think that that would have been the case at all. Um, it honestly depends on the judge. That judge was just a fucking racist cunt to go and have uh, Bobby chained up, gagged, and, you know, bound to his seat because he didn't like him asserting his rights in court to speak on his own behalf and to, ma- to demand that, you know, uh, he be able to have his representation there. Right. You know, you, that you judge was an asshole. What I've read from Bobby Seale's perspective that I already wish would have been in the movies. Huh. Jer- Jerry Rubin following the bailiff around past searching people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been nice to include in there because it speaks volume to the, the climate there in the court. Of, oh, yeah. And I, I, and I mean, I have to like... Looking back at, at that movie, I mean, or the the situation of the real trial, realistically, you have to admire the the level of not giving a single fuck of mm-hmm. Jerry Rubin and um, Abby Hoffman. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, they they made it their mission to make a mockery of that court, and I mean, they might have. You know, like got some jail time out of it, but they certainly well worth it. <laughs> right? Is you know they felt that that was well worth it to be honest and call the court out for its bullshit, regardless of if it resulted in time sitting in jail or not. They knew that was a roll of the dice that they were possibly going to be looking know. at. They still stood up and spoke their piece, and I respect yeah, that. Yeah, tomorrow off work. It, that's yeah. some free room and board for a minute, well earned. <laughs> Although anymore it's not free, they make you pay for your days in jail. Uh, Nastles. Right. All right. Well, uh, you got anything that you uh, that you want to plug? You better. Uh, not that I can think of, other than our own stuff here. Of you know, be sure to check out our website www.forwearemany.org. You can find us on most social media. Uh, on Facebook, we have the For We Are Many page, the For We Are Many support group, which has now been changed to the Education and Discussion group. Um, we also have a mutual aid group. Uh, on Twitter, you can find us at For We Are Many Too. On Instagram, at For We Are Many Podcast. On TikTok, at For We Are Many Podcast. And on YouTube, at For We Are Many Podcast. And welcome to the Department of Redundancy Department. Yeah, 
Actually, our, <laughs> like, our, like, username, like, to search us on Facebook, obviously you can search the name for We Are Many, but, like, the, like, at sign, you know, is uh, mm-hmm. for We Are Many podcast as well. Yep. Yeah. We, we tried to make it all the same thing, but that didn't end up happening because we got for we are many.org and then we went with for We Are Many for the Patreon as well. Speaking of which, if you would like to support us materially, uh, we are on Patreon. Patreon.com slash for we are many. Every dollar helps. We have overhead expenses. um, And it's going to cost us money to keep growing, too. Right. I want to smoke so bad, babe. <laughs> My brother's on his phone next to me. <laughs> I, I hear that. Sorry. <laughs> Heather, your voice was just enshrined on our podcast. <laughs> right? We're about to blaze. So, yes, if you got them, smoke them, people. We're about to. <laughs> Speaking of Free which, the this weed. isn't related at all, but uh, the Senate—is it the Senate or the House? Our 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 Congress is finally discussing the federal legalization of marijuana. Fuck so, yeah! Contact your representatives tomorrow. Maybe I'll post something uh, on our website—a copy and paste thing, like I did with our thing about Cuba. Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, the link to that is yeah, on our page. Um, it's in the group. Um, right, just fill in the name of the representative that you're sending it to and fill in your own name and send. And contact um, all of your elected officials at the national level currently about the situation in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go too in-depth on it. Watch Monday's stream if you want a little perspective on what's going on in Cuba. Um, but either way, U.S. In- intervention is not the answer. Letting the Miami Cubans go to fight the Cuban Cubans to overthrow the Cuban government is an absolutely ridiculous idea. And uh, all of those things they're trying to avoid talking about the embargo. Exactly. Even if there is an overthrow of the regime in Cuba, which I don't think most Cubans want, even if there is an overthrow of the regime with the embargo still in place, their condition is not going to get any better. If you want to improve the material conditions of the Cuban people, we need to be vocal the embargo. telling our representatives, our employees in Washington to stop starving the Cuban people. Right. This situation right now is caused by our own government having this embargo. We're the ones limiting them from being able to purchase more food to import when you know their crops took a hit this year. And that's the cause, you know, as far as the immediate. But in the long term, we've had this trade embargo against them for over 60 years, limiting them from being able to freely trade, not just with us, but with a bunch of other countries. Who the fuck are we to tell a bunch of other countries across the planet that they can't trade with Cuba either? You know, right now they need food and fuel because their crops took a hit and we're stopping them from being able to import food. I want to show you guys something. Um, This happened during our stream. We got a we got a false information flag. USA Today is saying that the U.S. embargo doesn't prevent Cuba from trading with other countries. 
No. The fuck it doesn't. That's its entire purpose. Time out. Time out. But this is a technicality, though. I'm not. Okay. So technically, they're not wrong because it doesn't prevent Cuba from trading with other countries. It prevents other countries that trade with the United States from trading with Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. They they have a choice of if they trade with Cuba, they're going to be cut off from trading with us. Right. So, I mean, I just wanted to address that. And if that means that we get flagged by Facebook, so be it. Um, Fuck Fuckerberg. Fuck yeah, we've been having a lot of red flag or shit. We've been having a lot of real issues with uh, Zuckerberg lately. So, frankly, if. you know, if you guys want to go to forweermany.org and start interacting with our live streams there, they'll be hosted by YouTube. But, I mean, you can make an account on our on our website and actually comment and engage in that way. Right. We're setting that up to have our own platform so that way we're not getting the fucking suck. Um, if we're able to figure out the widget where it'll connect the two, then cool. If not, either way you'll still be able to log in right on our site and comment. Yep. We're working on that. We're building that. We're also um, starting to publish some more articles. We're working on that. We've got to get some more content up. Um, There's a new one that we published a few days ago that I wrote. Go check it out. Um, And if you are a writer or content producer, and you would like to network with us, shoot us a message. We're building columns there where, you know, we can host your writing, have a regular column up for you on a weekly basis, uh, things like we that. We can host so, anything. By all means. If you want us to host right. videos, video, I mean, we can. Um, uh-huh. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the video interface. Uh, that WordPress offers, but it is a possibility, um, as well as hosting videos right. to our, you know, YouTube and Facebook as well. We're more than willing to do that. Um, for that matter, if you're somewhere on the left, you know, that involves fighting fascists, I guess, then, uh, you know, if you're anywhere from a progressive liberal to a straight up fucking communist, we have space for you. Right. Anyway, I think that about wraps it up. Indeed. Uh, don't forget I to check you, out everyone. our don't forget to check out our German Revolution pieces, our piece tomorrow at um, same time, eight o'clock Eastern. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's um, it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Join us next Monday. We'll be back with another current events episode. Um, I believe. Wednesday, we might have another piece being released. Thursday, there will be part uh, well, 10 Tuesday, of this. Tuesday, we can do... Uh, I thought we were going to try to do the Communist Manifesto pieces on Tuesday. That's the one, yes. Yeah. Um, Drawing we, back we can probably things. do another historical piece for Wednesday, but really it depends on, you know, free time. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well. Just let me know when you're free. We can get down and start pre-recording some of those. Get that stuff kicked out. Hell yeah. Anyway, uh, this week we had a piece every day, and it'd be kind of nice to continue that uh, going forward. Right. Since, since we did kind of stagnate in terms of uh, production capacity for a while there. Um, 
But hey, now, we, now we do have up. the capacity. What we need is more voices. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, see you guys Monday. Indeed. Have a good night. <laughs>